Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Reckless to Talk, our TTRPG interview show where we sit down with some of our favorite writers, players, GMs, and streamers and get to know a little bit more about what makes them who they are. I am, as always, your host, GM Nathan, and I am super excited to bring not one but two guests to you this week, Alex and Asa of Backwards Tabletop. I originally met Alex on social media and got to know them a little bit better, playing in a couple of actual plays on the channels of former Atok guests, Carrie Smith at Crossroads and Will from Life in the Apocalypse, and I had a great time talking to them both about their excellent, flavorful setting and system. Backwater focuses on American gothic horror settings and mechanics and have released several locations for their flavorful, monstrous, post-apocalyptic setting, including literally a new one today. Um, Well, if you're listening to the episode, the day uh, that it comes out. Asa and Alex are two lovely folks doing really great work, and it was such a joy to talk to them because, well, not only are they two lovely folks doing great work, But they also have so much joy and thought and insight to share on working together to achieve their vision. We have a real blast chatting about telling the stories that you love, exploring history and today through TTRPGs, capitalism is the true monster, and much, much more. Be sure to check the show description for links, as well as a small content warning, and please enjoy the episode. See you next time. Why, hello there. Hello. Hello. That's to you guys. Oh, hey. <laughs> hello. God, you're going to ambush us like this right off the bat? Uh, well, you know, I, I thought that the, okay, I'm hitting the record button. Let's give a couple seconds of silence for before we jump in. I thought that was going to be enough, and I, I apologize. Uh, that, was, that was very unprofessional of me. But I would like to make it up to the both of you by giving you this opportunity to please introduce yourselves to our lovely listeners uh, who may or may not know who you are. Uh, please, again, tell us, tell us who you are, your pronouns, what they might know you from, all that good stuff. Well, uh, hi, everybody. My name is Asa with he, him pronouns, and I am one of the victims of Nathan's ambush here. Um, and I'm also one of the uh, two creators for Backwards Tabletop. And hey, everybody, I'm Alex Johnson, also he, him pronouns, at Mightiest Finn on Twitter the other creator of the Backwards Tabletop uh, universe. And you might know me from some games I've played with Carrie at Crossroads Games or Will at Live from the Apocalypse. Who had some, I think Will's been on the uh, podcast recently, one of our favorites. Two reckless to talk veterans. Indeed. And yeah, that's me. Hello. Hello. And I should say, you can find me at Backwater TTRPG, or find both <laughs> technically, uh, on Twitter, if Twitter will still be around in two weeks uh, when the podcast comes up. Believe me, we've, we just recorded a bunch of like mid-roll promos for our podcast, and we're like, and I, and I, in my heart, was like, we might have to re-record these in like three weeks. We'll see how things go, but it's fine. It's fine. Yep, at Reckless underscore Attack on Twitter. Definitely go there for as long as... <laughs> as you can <laughs> but but we are not here to talk about twitter we're not well, i mean if it comes up whatever but that is that is not that is not what compels us here on this virtual table today no it is to talk about tabletop role-playing games and all of the excellent tabletop role-playing game things that you guys have been doing uh but but 
let's not jump straight in. We got to build to it. We got to set the foundation. We got to, you know, kind of tell act one of your MCU movie, just kind of a, a, a origin story in the tabletop space. So for the both of you guys, what was kind of your your first exposure to tabletop role-playing games, either in concept or in terms of, of you first playing and kind of in, engaging with them? Well, Anna, Alex, I feel like you should go first just because my origin stories are going to be so much more boring than yours. And I, I know <laughs> your origin stories. There's drama in your origin story, some sadness. So there's sort of a redemption arc. Mine is much more boring. I grew up in the rural Midwest, very rural, middle of nowhere. So I, the nearest town where I grew up was about 10 miles away, uh, and it had 75 people in it. Oh. And my closest neighbor was my grandma, and she lived over a mile away. And so there's not much going on. I grew up on a farm out there. Uh, and the nearest city was like 50 miles away, and I had a friend, and we used to sometimes go up there when I was a teenager. We'd drive up, and we'd go to these game stores and we used to play like Magic the Gathering and that sort of stuff. But we always saw D D uh books on you know on the shelves, but could never afford them and wondered why these books just cost so much money. <laughs> so our first exposure to tabletop role playing games was seeing them and not being able to afford them and then deciding that we we're gonna go home one day and make up our own uh, our own rules for it. Yes. And that was about when I was probably 16 and my friend was 17. And then we just forgot about it years afterwards because the rules that we made up uh, uh, were fun, but not all that fun. And that same friend, uh, <laughs> this is after I had gone to grad school, he uh, was getting married and we asked him, what do you want to do for your bachelor party? And the wild people that we are, he said, I'd like to play Dungeons and Dragons because we've never played it before. And this was around the time that 5e first came up. Uh, so a group of us decided to play it. And we started playing tabletop role-playing games again and uh, expanded beyond D&D from there pretty quickly. So for for you, was it something that had kind of always lingered in the background of like, hey, we, we, we tried it. Again, it had a cool cover. We did our own weird thing. Was that always a like, it would be cool to come back or did it just kind of fade away over the years and then just kind of be brought back to, to consciousness uh, as the demands of a bachelor party came to light. I think it was always in the background, but maybe not necessarily D&D itself mm -hmm. um, or necessarily tabletop games or dice uh, games or anything. We didn't even know that D&D had dice. That's how ignorant we were when we first started. <laughs> but uh, we did love stories, um, the two of us. And that's something I still love and that I know Alex has a passion for, too. And we were just interested in that collaborative storytelling. And that, in many ways, survived through the friendship that I still have with my friend um, and many of my other friends uh, throughout college. It's one of the things that connected us. And that group, even though we didn't play tabletop role-playing games in college, we definitely play them now. And it's something that we do to stay connected. Did that kick off entering into your tabletop role-playing game era? Like it, you, you sat down, you actually officially played a tabletop role-playing game with your friends. And then did it become a regular thing after, like shortly after that? Or did it, you know, kind of uh, uh, slowly devolve from there? After my friend's bachelor party, where we all played D&D &D for the first time. Uh, a couple of months later, he came back to us and he said, hey, do you want to try a campaign? And all of us said yes. And his wife <laughs> uh, joined in, uh, joined in too. And the group sort of grew. It was a little bit unmanageable, <laughs> but we ran a campaign for years afterwards. 
And when we wrapped up that campaign, it was one of the most beautiful things. Uh, yeah, we actually finished the campaign, which is something that a lot of people can't say about uh, at least D&D. Yeah. I would say it became regular. We played about monthly, and that was one of the things that started kicking it, kicking it off. But I think what really kicked it off is when we started and pretty quickly after that to try to reach outside of D&D. And we're like, we want to play other types of games. Like the big one that we wanted is we want to play like Jurassic Park. And that was when a couple of us um, uh, from that friend group started uh, getting into messing around with tabletop games and trying to write our own. Uh, and Jurassic Park went really well. We did a sequel um, as well. And <laughs> awesome. uh, we played a few other games uh, based on that too. We'll get back to Jurassic Park, but we'll we'll let Alex tell his uh, apparently very dramatic, sordid story uh, of his origins as well. Okay, well, let's draw the curtains up in the year 1999 when Smash Mouth's All-Star is top of the charts. I actually don't know if that's true. I was going to say, is that true? I mean, <laughs> I don't I would think be, that's true. I'm not calling you on it. I would <laughs> just would have been very impressed if you're like, ah, yes, I remember very specifically <laughs> this year, Smash Mouth. No, I did... I thinking about this because uh, I knew this question was coming, not to spoil anything, but uh, I did look up what some of the songs of 1999 were because <laughs> I cannot physically remember these things, but <laughs> that is one of the songs of 1999. Anyway, I was a mere 10-year-old chubby middle schooler who lacked for friends and didn't know what he was doing with his life. And I made a <laughs> couple friends who were kind of weirdos like me, and we played warhammer fantasy battles if you're familiar mm. with the miniatures game and none of us were good we were all really bad at it and we decided we wanted to play a different game and so <laughs> someone came back with the AD&D book second edition dungeons and dragons and we looked at it and we tried to make sense of it <laughs> and our small developing brains were very, very confused. Mm -hmm. We played one game of it, and everyone said, mm. <laughs> And then someone brought Warhammer Fantasy Battles, the role-playing game. Yes. Which is a universe that we are all familiar with. And for some reason, that incredibly crunchy, silly system stuck in our brains way better. Like, that's what I count as my first tabletop role-playing game. Mm -hmm. It's not D&D. &D. We did, you know, like two two years of middle school adventuring, which at the time felt like a lot. But, uh, you know, yeah. now it's, you know, two years of your tiny, tiny adolescence. Two years of playing any one game is a lot of it. As someone who whose podcast has been going <laughs> for 18 months, no, that's a lot. That's a lot of game. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> Fair. I'm not saying it was all the same campaign. Yeah. Everyone wanted to be a dwarf slayer and everyone wanted to be, you know, a Duh. knight and all of the fun things. Uh, everyone wanted to shoot Skaven rat men in the face with our guns. And Duh. we did. And it was great. That was the spark that lit the fire in terms of, ah, this is interesting. This is a way of telling stories that I like. Mm -hmm. Tabletop role-playing games was was the way in which I was most effectively and enjoyably able to tell stories that I wanted to tell. So we'll talk a little bit about, you know, kind of your, your guys's transformation to the current content creators that you have become. But you both kind of touched on it a little bit. And I want to dig in. What about playing tabletop role-playing games? not just now, but then, and to have continued doing it for as many years and to care enough about doing it to want to make your own games and settings and keep playing all these other different games and what kind of grabs at you in playing, in writing, in performing, or all of it, or each individually? So I think that for me, one of the most interesting ways uh, that TTRPGs let you tell stories is collaboratively. You know, I, I mm -hmm. think one of the reasons I often fail as a 
just a regular human writer is because uh, my brain doesn't work in a way that's like, I'm going to tell a linear story, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. just it, it doesn't function that way. But I'm very interested in the stories that other people tell and the ways in which those would influence my own. So for example, any successful thing I've written has been in conversation with other pieces of media, if that makes sense, you know, um, so taking taking stories and thinking about them in my brain of, oh, what if this happened? So I was kind of doing a little bit of TTRPGing in my head while I read books, but this allows you to actually tell a story with other humans that interact with you as opposed to your weird fantasy conversation with Tolkien, you know? No, I was just nodding along as you're saying, it's like, yeah, no, of course you do that. This is not the podcast to be judged on those sort of uh, reading habits. So you're very safe there. Thank you. What TTRPGs do for me is, yeah, like Alex, I just love stories and they're a different way of, of experiencing stories. So we, it's collaborative, but you're actually experiencing it. You're role playing. And I love books. Like I said, grew up in the middle of nowhere. Basically, all I did was books. I read books. And eventually, I even went to grad school for books. I did my PhD in books, basically, (laughs) quite literally in literature. And for me, that was something that I was interested in. And when you're reading books, you're role taking, right? These are characters, you're following them along, but you don't get to make any of the decisions unless you're doing like a choose your own adventure novel, which is pretty great. Uh, but with tabletop role-playing games, it's that actual element of being able to experience it and, and role-play um, in those experiences that they can have consequences. They can affect the other people that are yeah. in the game with you, and you can just enjoy those experiences together. So that's something that I love about it. This is one of the classic points in A Reckless Talk where um, I have 17 follow-up questions uh, and and none of them flow effortlessly one into the other. So uh, I will do my best to rein it in. So before we, again, kind of get into even more again, of the you guys making things. Let's talk about the you guys aspect. Uh, how did you guys uh, connect? Because I uh, obviously, well, uh, no one lived within a mile of, of one of you, except for your grandma, for example. Uh, and, you know, and, and how, how does the two of you uh, come together at all, let alone come together and then kind of start creating stuff together? Well, we went to college at the same college, although different degrees. And through a mutual friend who also plays D&D, he reached out and said, hey, I'm putting together a group of people. Do you want to play Dungeons and Dragons? And I said, no, because I don't like meeting new people. Fair. And then he said, are you sure? And I said, well, okay, fine. If you're going to twist my arm, I do want to play D&D. But there are all kinds of new people, and my anxiety went, mm, okay. But then Asa was there, and Asa was very nice. And I felt a good connection with Asa because we role-played well together. And I was like, you know what? Good job, Alex's uh, better angels winning out over his anxieties. You did good, and now we've made a friend. Yeah, that's pretty much true. Uh, <laughs> I <would> say, <laughs> you know, I felt a pretty much instant uh, kinship with Alex. If you ever watch Alex in any actual plays, he's a pretty great storyteller, creates really fun characters, too. And uh, right away, I just sort of felt that uh, that sort of kinship with Alex to the point where somehow I got roped into like we played one game with that same uh, GM. And then they're like, oh, we need a new GM already. And they're like, Asa, even though this is your first time in the group, do you want to be the GM? And I was like, sure. And Alex is like, let me pitch a character to you. 
he's a frog person and he lives in a tree person and the tree person is another one of the characters and his name is Mumbleford Waits and uh, I'm like all right I'm in sounds familiar and that was basically how Alex and I became friends as we started plotting out his character storyline and basically became the main the main story arc then eventually I moved away Um, I took a job down in in southern Arkansas and then uh, eventually I decided to move back. And when I decided to move back, Alex decided to move to New England. Uh, <laughs> but we stayed in touch over all that, all that period of time just because yeah, we became pretty close friends. And, and we continue to play TTRPGs online with each other, too. So that helped. Although when Asa said he was moving back, I definitely did had already yeeted to New England. It wasn't because you yeah. were coming back. Just to be clear. But if you hadn't decided, you would have gone at that. Right. Point. I would have been like, okay, definitely a point in favor of New England right now. Yeah. Or at least a you know, a decision. Yeah, a decision point was like, ah, I'm a little fifty fifty. Well, with this information, maybe it is time to to expand my roots, try to try to move somewhere new. Yeah, I, I get it. I understand. Um, you guys playing some games together, you know, even even with a nice, a good connection um, and even with staying friends from afar for so many years, that is dramatically different than saying, hey, would you like to create an entire new tabletop game and accompanying setting and accompanying adventures and additional setting books and kickstart things together? So <laughs> can you uh, just kind of recall what the path was going from, hey, we like making things or like we like playing and we like this to, hey, we're going to make a thing, a thing that is tangible and is not just the normal things that we make when we're playing games and kind of connecting and creating stories together. I have a very crystal memory of this, Asa. I don't know about you, but... I do too. I think we're going to have two different stories. So, okay. So I'm going to ruin your story just by saying the real reason we did it was to stay in touch. But, I mean, <laughs> yes. But no, go ahead, Alex, and then and then I'll uh, tell an alternate version. That's not wrong. But <laughs> when this option sort of crystallized in my head, it was, I want to say, February of 2020, March of 2020. Asa, you were in Arkansas alone. I was stuck in New Hampshire because my partner went on a research trip to Jerusalem three weeks before COVID hit. Oh, <laughs> And so I was in a new place with no contact whatsoever. Yeah. And all of my contacts were back in Minnesota or in Arkansas, as the case may be. And just like feeling incredibly depressed. Yeah. <laughs> I did not know what to do with myself. And so it was really a lifeline in terms of I need something to focus on to give me hope. (laughs) And I think making a very terrible setting might help with that. Well, and and to be to be clear, terrible being descriptive of the state of the setting. Sure, not as opposed to the quality of product. Yes, that was what I was hoping. You know, it's your story, you tell it. But I liked it when I read it, unless we're talking about something else, I guess, but just thought it was worth clarifying. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, good point. No, it it was a feeling like if I'm able to make my own apocalypse Mm. that I can control and have some influence on as opposed to the swirling chaos (laughs) of death that surrounds me, perhaps that will help my mental state. And I think it did. Yeah, I I think a, a lot of that's pretty accurate. There are some other things that were flowing toward it too. So like I said, I think a big reason uh, at one point in time, I was 
just like, you know, wanted to keep chatting with Alex and find other things that we could do together while we were both mm-hmm. in very different places. Um, even before that, I would always been interested in making my own tabletop role playing game and actually marketing it. And like I said, it started with Jurassic Park and I was like playing around with all these different system ideas um, long, long before that. And then leading up to the moment that Alex is talking about, uh, I was playing a campaign based on the Dark Tower series by Stephen King and oh, cool. uh, had created like uh, a system for it, which is related to what we ended up doing uh, for this um, project, related but not the same. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to put this out for free. And I put it, I was putting it out on Twitter. And then I actually had a blue tick content creator uh, write to me and said, this is illegal. You can't even put it out for free. And I'm like, thanks for raining on my parade and it freaked me <laughs> out. And uh I actually went so far as to contact uh, Stephen King's agent. Oh, yeah. And it's like, hey, you know, is this okay? And uh, the guy's like, I don't know. Let's talk about it. And then he said, no, uh, (laughs) Stephen King is actually going to put out, and he still hasn't done it, by the way, but they're going to put out sort of an RPG setting or or something like that based on his work. So I was like, fine, you know what? Maybe we'll make our own things. And I, I was like, Alex, let's make our own thing. And Alex said, please save me from the depths of this New Hampshire winter. (laughs) Fair. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it's a very appropriate setting for uh, having just come off of a Stephen King uh, TTRPG product. So I want to kind of encompass the stuff that you guys have done together before we kind of start getting into the bones of it. You have been producing things for a couple of years now. And it has all been under kind of the same umbrella, a same shared setting and like rule set and that kind of stuff. So can you just describe for the listener all the like kind of a just a little bit about the setting that you guys put together and about all the stuff that you guys have kind of created for it, just so that there is that idea of what you've done, all the stuff you're planning to do and 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 all that. Yeah, so uh, most people probably know us from the Backwater tabletop role-playing game. So Backwater is a Southern Gothic core tabletop role-playing game. We also have uh, a new one coming out, actually came out today, or what will be uh, today when this podcast releases, which is Backroads, (laughs) uh, another American Gothic core, but this one's set in Middle America. And both of these games use the same uh, system. It's an original system, um, and that original system... Uh, it's meant to be really character forward in design. It, if you go through the character creation process, it's, it's extremely thorough. Yeah. But characters are part of what makes good stories and can allow for great role playing and great drama. And we want people to really have fun with their with their narratives and really build out characters that fit uh, within a lot of the settings that um, that uh, that we have. So uh, there are two books out there, uh, as I said, Backwater and Backroads. We also have Quick Start Guides, which will be for both of them, which have basic character creation information as well as some of the very basic rules. And those are always free if you'd like to take a look. And then we have Adventures for all of those as well. I think we probably have uh, two full adventure books, and then we also have uh, a couple of smaller adventures um, that people can pick up too. So the setting of the backwards tabletop games is uh, a post-apocalyptic United States. We're pretty specifically unclear about what happened and how long ago that was, because we want to leave that up to whoever's playing to work that in. But uh, an event occurred that wiped out civilization as we know it. And 
after several hundred years of rebuilding, the focus of the settings is the sort of eastern seaboard of the United States into uh, the Midwest and the South Louisiana. My inspiration for it was a kind of like 15th century Reformation era Holy Roman Empire type situation with a lot of little like powerful cities, uh, figurehead ruler, uh, a lot of like weird bureaucratic Byzantine nonsense in terms of if you're navigating it, it can be very complex. The settings goals are to sort of reflect on our own period. So for example, there's a religious cult that worships the founding fathers of the United States But their conception of who the founding fathers are is very broad. Uh, It goes from Washington up to, uh, I think, at least Nixon we've got in there. (laughs) And it's this sort of confused jumble of who they are, what they did, why they're important. They're kind of prophets in the Judeo-Christian sense, but they're also kind of gods themselves. The setting looks back on our time with a very skewed lens, which is, I think, one of the things that apocalyptic genre and Southern and Gothic horror genres do specifically well, but we can talk about that later. The players in Backwater take on the role of wardens who are like agents of the government, either the local nobles or they're kind of, they can work for the federal government. uh, And they're just there to protect the citizens from the supernatural, from the monstrous, and from rich people (laughs) who are the real monsters of all games that we write. Yeah, right. Not necessarily in that order. Yeah, anytime that Alex and I write games, it's like, oh yeah, there's a ghost, but the real bad person (laughs) is the rich guy. (laughs) Right, yeah. And not necessarily in the Scooby-Doo way where it is the rich guy who is the ghost. It's like, "Mm, no, no. No, the rich guy made the ghost upset and maybe we should just let the ghost take care of the rich guy. That's fine. Yeah, maybe the ghost is right, actually. (laughs) So, you guys are sitting down to create this setting. And I I really enjoyed kind of going through a lot of the details that were provided, even in just the quick start stuff. There is a lot of good stuff to kind of sink your teeth into as you're sitting down, maybe even before you knew if it was a system or a setting or both or just an adventure. But when you're sitting down to create, to make a thing, what was kind of your inspiration? Like what lit the fire other than uh, I need something to do <laughs> in my loneliness in different parts of the United States? What themes or messages or images just like grabbed onto your brain that propelled you forward? So circling back to the this idea of I'm going to make my own apocalypse, one of the things that I did for my my academic studies is I'm, I'm a history person who studied the Reformation era, and there's a lot of apocalyptic thinking in that time period. They saw the world as ending for some very different but similar <laughs> reasons to ones that we might relate to. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it shapes the way not only that they see themselves, but the way they see the past. One of the things that was very important for me when we were looking at, okay, this game is probably going to be post-apocalyptic. What does that mean? It means that there is going to be an importance of the past that is distorted by the views of the people in the present. And so for me, it was thinking about this sort of historical precedent, our own precedent, and trying to fuse those together in a way that made sense to me. Yeah. And that's where this notion for me of a kind of mid-15th century European style that is also trying to be as American as it can be, 
based on its limited knowledge. I guess I'll ask also, uh, you know, and I always like, you know, hearing the types of stories that people are interested in, even if they are drastically different than the stories that they're producing or telling. But but for you, uh, it is obviously a, a historical period and a, a specific historical period and stuff. So what about that is is so interesting to you as kind of a scholarly subject and interesting enough, obviously, to then be like, hmm, that. But what if we made it into a tabletop role playing game? <laughs> I think there are a couple things and I'm not going to ramble about them because you can't ask a historian a question like that. I'm a history major. I'm fine. I'm here for okay, it. Okay. All right. I am the audience here. <laughs> Screw the listeners. You're telling me a rapt member of the, the Reckless to Talk uh, listening body, which is is me. Wonderful. One of the things that I find particularly interesting about this period is that it's a moment of communication change in terms of technology. Yeah. The printing press is around, but they're really starting to refine their ability to really broadly distribute information in the form of opinion pieces, specifically about the Reformation, Mm -hmm. which is a parallel in my mind to the sort of social media revolution that's going on right now. The proliferation of opinion in that time is similar, I think. There are obviously gradients of scale, but you start having higher literacy rates and people who are able to communicate effectively over a broad scale. And that really has an impact on society. And it's not a good one, necessarily. (laughs) It breaks down traditional societal orders and structures. And I think that's going on now in a sort of similar way, thanks to social media. Also, it's a time where maybe because of that, there are other factors, but you get a lot of uncertainty in society about who we are. The intellectuals of the time are starting to refine and retranslate Roman history and Roman pieces, Mm -hmm. and they're starting to understand themselves in relation to Rome. And they're like, oh, look at what we were and what we could be. Mm -hmm. That is a theme that I, I took forward into Backwater, where you have people who know about the American past and they're interested in it. And they say, oh, look what we were. Yeah. The knowledge of the humanists in the 15th and 16th centuries is imperfect in the same way that the knowledge of the founders in Backwater is imperfect. And I think it's interesting to explore the ways in which imperfect knowledge creates its own new knowledge pool, because that's effectively what happened then and is happening in Backwater. So, and and again, this is because I'm, I'm a history nerd, but I also think it's something that speaks to the core of kind of the vibe that you guys are putting out. We're on the side of the information or technological or societal kind of revolution of, you know, the printing press of all these other things, the, the historical equivalent. Are they before that? Are they after that? Are they somewhere in the messy middle of that? Was there a particular positivity, negativity, hopelessness, hopefulness that you were kind of like uh, honing in on, or at least, or maybe even that you just kind of discovered as you you kind of uh, churned away at creating this this big vibey setting? I think that for for the the setting itself, they're in the messy middle. They are rediscovering and the the civilization, the state is expanding in beyond its current borders. There is interest in knowing what's out there. So characters often will be taking the role of explorers or spelunkers Mm -hmm. or people who are going out into what is unknown to the people who live in the American lands and bringing back old technology and bringing back 
like old maps or bringing back weapons and these sorts of things. So they're currently in a renaissance in terms of their rebirth of knowledge. That said, it's not perfect. They're working within their own limited frame and they're making logical choices and assumptions that aren't necessarily spot on, but that's okay. Yeah. For all of all of the sort of wacky critique of current American society, for me, there is quite a bit of hope in the backwards tabletop universe, because even though there are these structures that exist that oppress, players really have agency to change those, at least in games that I run. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. maybe maybe I'm infecting the setting myself with my own optimism in terms of of where it can go. Good news. It's your guys' setting, so that I think you get some degree of ownership over that, at least at your own tables. I don't know. People people talk about author intent and they're like, nay, nay. Yeah. Well y- you have none, sir. <laughs> I think I think when the author is also like if Shakespeare was also starring in in his play, that that that's a little bit more a little bit more ownership, I guess, so to speak. So did you go in thinking we're going to do a system, thinking you're going to do a setting, or thinking always from the jump, we want to do both? I guess I would just, you know, because people ask like, oh, do you come up with the system first? Do you come up with right. the setting first? I, I don't know. I think it's more, it's more of a chicken and egg situation, meaning like there's no right answer. Totally. Alex and I, you know, we both had ideas floating around for settings, and we both had uh, ideas floating around for the system, and we're trying to find things that meshed with what we're looking for. So on one hand, we were interested in, the, in as we said, Gothic literature, but in particular, uh, regional American Gothic or Southern Gothic, sort of interested in, in what appears in the Gothic, where there's something hanging over you, and oftentimes it's related to the past. You're looking at these ruined Italian castles, or on the other hand, you're in the South and you're looking at these ruined uh, ruined buildings, and there's this uh, always hanging over you is the history of the South, its cruel history and slavery, and uh, and even uh, and even more than that too. I started working on the system sort of years previous or stuff that that I was interested in for it, but it wasn't really until Alex came in and we began creating that that setting that the system began to grow. Got it. And one of the things that I think is really important for us is that we really wanted a, a system that incorporates the setting. Yeah. So definitely. if you go through the character creation process, you're mm-hmm. actually going to find that there are bits that help you build out not just your backstory, but connect you to the actual world in which you are. And there's slightly different options for each setting. Um, so there's back roads, as we said, there's backwater. We have two new settings, which I think we might preview a little bit about uh, towards <laughs> the end of this interview as well. And in all of those, one of our goals is helping people orient themselves within the world so that yeah. they can actually figure out who their character is and what stakes they have, what, what their values are and why they're, why they're going on these, uh, on these adventures. The other thing is, as we're talking about Gothic literature and thinking about maybe the threat of the supernatural, whether it is a supernatural or, or not, we also wanted to emphasize this is more of a survival and horror uh, type game. So we're thinking a lot about, okay, what are the mechanics that are important for making your decisions a little bit more consequential? You know, you want people to be reminded, I am this character and what I do has consequences and it could end with my character being hurt or uh, even even dead or it could have consequences for my party and that can really mean a lot. Or there could be consequences in terms of the items that you use if you're trying to preserve them, for example. So these are major things in survival horror, what you're packing along with you and taking with you. So 
like I said, we had ideas for the system, but it wasn't really until Alex and I started pulling the setting together that both of them began to develop. Yeah, I think one thing that truly stood still stands out was even though we're doing a supernatural uh, general vibe, you know, werewolves, vampires, ghosts, what have you, we still wanted to make and emphasize that survival aspect. So we wanted to make guns scary, for example. It's fine if a werewolf rips you apart, but like if a dude just shoots you and does two points of damage, it's like, oh, okay, that was fine, I guess. <laughs> a flesh wound. Right. That was a point that we sort of worked on in terms of we, we created a new mechanic to simulate like when you get shot, you might bleed out. In order to make sure that guns are rare and scary in the setting, we had to make sure that the mechanics allowed for them to be more harmful If your character gets hit, that was an important thing for me was making sure that the human elements of the terror are just as terrifying as the supernatural elements. And therefore, we had to make a mechanical aspect for the game specifically to that. So it's a D20 system. I think I think it is exclusively, if I recall, like the only the only die I think you need is a D20. Is that correct? Or is there damages and stuff? Yeah, there's still damage dice and all that. But D20 is the primary die. Is you use the for, die. For most of the things that you have. Yeah. For skill rolls, for things that we call health and resolve rolls, for example, too. So was curious, what kind of things were you trying to capture as you were designing, either at the very beginning where you're just like, no, nothing out there is what we want. But also, as you were, like you said, pulling on the setting, building things together and kind of fitting all those puzzle pieces together, what goal did you want to kind of achieve? Or like, what was the vibe? What was the design goal that you you guys wanted out of the system itself? Well, I I think first, uh, I'll just say, if anyone wants to just play in the setting uh, and they don't want to use our system, (laughs) go for it. No, seriously. And if you just want to use our system... And you don't want to uh, use the setting, go for it. In fact, we have we have a Discord where we have a number of people who play our games, um, chat in there, and we've had both of those instances. Somebody's like, "Well, I want to do uh, Gumshoe instead, but I want to use the setting." And this other oh, person's cool. like, "I want to use your setting, but I want to do it for some Appalachian horror related uh, uh, stuff that they've created." And honestly, go for it because we just want people to be able to play games, and hopefully, something that we've created can contribute to it. But I will say that I think one of our design goals is I like games that come with their own systems and settings that uh, come with their own systems because usually those things are meant to mesh together. And as I was talking a little bit about, there are a few things that we tried to design to make them uh, mesh with what we're going for in the system. Mm -hmm. And I think when it works really well, uh, that can be a pretty fun part of the experience or even an important part of the experience. But at the same time, I also just say, do what you want to do, so long as you're, you're having fun. A hundred percent. I think the only thing I will tack on to that is I remember we had a conversation about how restrictive character creation feels in a lot of games. You know, if you're a sorcerer, obviously there are options, but you're going to sort of fall into a couple different archetypes at the end of the day. And that's fine. You know, you bring you bring yourself to the character, but I enjoy there being a little more freeform character creation. And so one of the things I think that was important for both of us was we wanted two people to be able to build mechanically the same character that is wildly different, depending on the choices that they would make during character creation. So for example, characters have a class or an archetype, 
but none of their skill set is tied to that. It's all tied to their ideals. So two wardens who are both really good at killing things, one might be super into actually killing things, and the other might be super into crime. And that's going to (laughs) change how those characters' skills and their modules build out. I think that was a major driving factor in terms of we want this setting, but we also want really interesting characters that you you can really go in any direction with. And that was important. Yeah, I think it's very character forward design. Uh, you're going to see that pretty much uh, as soon as you start creating a character. It's also being very conscious about what characters look like and uh, and how they can even be played. So on, on one hand, it's like, well, these characters can develop with wildly different skills and abilities by the very end of it, or um, even in the early levels. You know, the abilities are modular in this game, meaning that there's a huge variety of choices that people can take as they, as they eventually level up. I think there's about 20, 20 skills or so in the game, and that's really important because we also want people that have realistic expectations uh, of these characters they're limited but they're better when they work together with other characters who can have very diverse uh, diverse skills what makes a character great sometimes is not just what they're good at but also not everybody is good at everything uh, we we have flaws and that can really make for better storytelling and better characters too I think that all plays into some of the survival uh, elements um, within the game uh, as well Obviously, a lot of the a lot of what you guys have talked about and a lot of what your work went into in terms of putting the game together was about character creation. You guys have talked a lot about it, how you really, really wanted that to be a core part of the experience is building your character, tying them to an identity and vibes and and the greater world and setting. So what does character creation look like in, in your game? What goes in to sitting down as a group or as an individual and and making your own uh, warden to play with? It begins with getting some of your basic characteristics set up and calculated, and then some of those characteristics can be uh, adjusted based off of what region of the American lands that, that you're from. The other important elements are even like the dialect that you have, uh, regional dialects or languages. They are based off of uh, where you're from, too. Eventually, you end up getting skills, uh, other things like your class or socioeconomic status come up there too. You know, how much money do you have? How much credit? And how does that impact what, what your clothing looks like? And uh, whether or not you can get into that fancy, you know, mask that you wanted to, uh, that you wanted to attend, or are you actually going to have to find other means of, of getting in there? Um, because clearly, uh, based off your clothes, they won't let you in. Another feature of character creation are traits, and these traits can be have more positive effects or they can have negative effects, uh, and you can pick either of those, and there's always something that balances them out. So if you pick a positive effect, you end up losing a skill point, and that skill point is used towards determining your skill proficiencies later on. What are the things that I'm good at doing? These traits, positive traits, can be like, hey, maybe you're a little bit faster or, hey, maybe you actually know a couple of different languages that you uh, that you can uh, use in the game. Or they could be negative and some of the negative traits can be interesting. You end up getting an additional skill point if you end up taking those, but they might have to do with like being touched by the devil, uh, for example, which is something coming out of one of the, the newer games where, yeah, you end up uh, having uh, maybe a little bit, a freaky look that uh, will change how other people interact with you. 
or maybe you're a wanted character, for example, which is going to um, bring some mischief along with you. So <laughs> there are those traits um, as well. The other thing I'll just add is there's a ton of customization uh, that's allowed within traits, the skills that you pick, um, all that, but also the items that you pick up too. There's a large catalog of items that we've created and people can sort of go wild and really pick what fits best with their characters. Uh, they're not all all weapons either. Um, a variety of tools that can be useful in different circumstances, but you can only carry so many on your character at a time. Um, and then among these are everyone's favorite uh, animal companions too. The most important <laughs> part of character creation is finding your animal companion. Got to, obviously. Yep. I did notice yeah. that, that was prominently featured in in a lot of in a lot of the rules. Like, don't forget, get an animal. Yeah. By the way, and it, and we really like. I, I know we had some more fun with it in Backroads, and we're going to continue building it out in, in some of our future games too. But I don't, my favorite is like you have a canary with a little resuscitator for Backroads, and the point of Backroads is you're exploring some of these abandoned buildings in, in St. Louis, this town that's been really well preserved since the apocalypse, and you're trying to find these old technologies and things. But some of the places that you're visiting, you know, might have uh, some toxic gas that you need to be aware of. And you can have your little canary friend in a, in a resuscitator. Um, of course, you can also just carry around your canary um, without adventuring into dangerous places, too. And just have a canary plus one canary is just yeah, an inherent exactly. good to, to carry with you at all times. And in one of our actual plays, somebody had a messenger pigeon as well, which was one of the best uh, characters um, that I've ever seen. I love that messenger pigeon. So Southern Gothic horror, you know, and, and you guys talked about it a little bit of having, you know, having a game that is a setting that is, you know, a, a genre thing that like is kind of one particular vision and experience. Obviously, knowing again, people can play however they want to play with whatever parts they want, et cetera, et cetera. First, what does Southern Gothic horror mean, either generally to you guys or in the context of of your setting and, and of your games? I would just start with Gothic. What is Gothic? And we've sort of hinted a little bit at it here and there as we've been talking to, but you know, Gothic, you can think about it really generally. It's a vibe or an aesthetic. It's something haunting or foreboding. The threat of the supernatural, as we said, or the bizarre. And when people think of Gothic, definitely they usually think of Gothic literature. Like I said, old ruined castles. And for me, Southern Gothic takes that and brings it to the South. And again, there are different regional uh, American Gothics um, that that we're interested in that we try to explore in some of our books. Uh, but in the South, you know, we're thinking about authors like Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor, and uh, also, even more modern stuff, Harrow County, if you've ever read those graphic novels, mm -hmm. amazing. Alex and I both love uh, love Incredible. those graphic novels. Yeah, Swamp Thing uh, is great, has a lot of Southern Gothic built into it, too, although most people don't necessarily think of it that way. In these, we see the the Gothic sort of showing up in many different, in many different ways. There can also be these decaying families and structures, and a lot of them are really reminiscent of the, of the South's history, its fall and its sins, um, as I mentioned earlier. And in so much of Gothic literature, especially Southern Gothic literature, as Alex, Alex was talking about, there's always that past, the past hanging over somebody's head and the secrets that are better left buried. With our setting, we sort of wanted to build on that. Okay, it's set in the South. We can bring a lot of that in, but we also are interested in, okay, it's in the South and we're looking back to the past 
but maybe a little bit safer paths for exploring um, with your friends where everyone can feel comfortable at the table. And we're looking back because we're in the post-apocalypse at the, at the present. The present is now the past and allows us to examine it in a new light, maybe a safer distance from it, but also in a way that really points out how ridiculous some of the things that are happening in our present, which end up leading to the to the apocalypse in our series, uh, how, how ridiculous they can be. Is this a setting that is kind of more steeped in that poppy version of a South? Is it historical South? Is it both? Or, or where was that guiding line for you guys? And we'll, we'll get into some of, like you said, some of the obviously darker parts of that and the, the more uh, shameful and harmful parts of that. But, but just kind of overall, where does that kind of come from for, for you guys? It's something that we that we care a lot about of, of sort of walking that line between fiction and some realism uh, in there too, where we're bringing in sensitivity readers for all of our projects because we are trying to make it a little bit uh, more real or authentic. And we always have somebody coming in and looking at race and disability, for example. But a lot of times we're also bringing in sensitivity readers who are from these uh, from the actual uh, regions that we're writing about too. We've been trying to bring in some collaborators, too, who are actually from these regions who can bring in lived experiences into these games and uh, and help us communicate these settings and make them both realistic and do it justice for people who actually do live in these areas uh, at the same time as make it something that's communicative uh, to people who haven't been there. We need to be able to speak to them as well as, for example, um, people who are actually from some of those er- uh, those areas. Something I really enjoyed reading through your guys' stuff, even again, even in the, the quick start rules, it was there as well as the kind of full document. But kind of you guys very early on, I think in the first couple of pages, talking about the hard parts of looking at the U.S. past, especially through the views of religion and through, you know, hyper patriotism and, and all that kind of stuff. I actually pulled a quote, you know, kind of the 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 juicy bits um, as you guys were were proceeding, talking about history of race, of disability in Southern Gothic. It just really struck me um, was the Southern Gothic genre explores social issues relating to fear, poverty, religion and alienation through its Southern U.S. setting. Prominent among the genre's themes is a conscious criticism of superficial values and regional or familial history depicted through the region's decaying structures and aristocratic families. It can contain monsters and the supernatural, though the true horrors are often humans themselves. And you go on to kind of talk about, hey, these are the kind of stories that this setting is talking about. Again, fear, poverty, religion, alienation. And you talk a little bit about here's what we're not interested in. We're not interested in demonizing disability or having that be a, you know, kind of a symbol for the grotesque. As you were kind of delving in and thinking about the genre and thinking about the, again, those social issues that are confronted there, again, fear, poverty, religion, alienation, all that kind of stuff. It is upfront. It is about social injustice. It is about oppression. It is about all these other things. That is the system that we're in. You know, was there something where it's like, those are the stories we need to tell, that this is about? And what went into the decision for you guys to out loud say that in your document? Because we're using Southern Gothic and post-apocalyptic as a way of looking at our own time, it was important to do two things. And they they sort of tie together both the, the positive affirmation of this is what this is. Yeah. And then the negative, this is what this is not. 
there are certain problems that we face that are interesting to tell in terms of a story. Stories about the ways in which capitalism and money fuck us all over and only allow you know a very small percentage of people to succeed while the others don't. Working against that is important. It infects our lives, and it's something we see every day. And that's something that I think pretty much any table can be comfortable with. I'm not saying that, you know, every table should be comfortable with it. Again, play the game your way. But there are broad injustices that we have right now that are economic in nature, and that's easily reflected in a post-apocalyptic setting that is modeled on (laughs) a Renaissance Europe, where indeed there are literal nobles who are oppressing people. In terms of what the setting is not, this is a thing I, I say pretty regularly on Twitter because it's important to me, but the backwards universe is a place where any player can open up a book and find themselves. And so we are absolutely not interested in telling stories where a player would be discriminated against for who they are. Yes, Southern Gothic has a history of using disability as a metaphor for monstrosity. That's not in the game because why would we want to stop those people from telling their story? You know, we want to hear these stories of people. We want to hear people who have disabilities. We want to hear your story. We want to hear people of color. We want to hear your story, trans individuals. Those are the sort of experiences and identities that make stories interesting. Diversity is great in terms of storytelling, and we want those stories, and we want those players to feel welcome. And so it was more of a, this is definitely what this game is not. And so this is what our focus will be, is these other sort of economic or social issues that broadly apply. You know, people can be alienated for any reason that is not who they are as a person, but what they you know believe or where they live or how much money they have that sort of thing, things they can control. It's also set in uh, in this post-apocalyptic setting. And I think one of the things that's important about that for us is when we're looking at backwater, as we said, we want everyone to be able to play comfortably. There are plenty of Southern Gothic games that are set in the past that allow for comfortable play, usually pretending that some of these issues in the South don't exist or didn't happen. But rather than set it in the past and pretend that these things didn't happen, we felt that it's also important to acknowledge that they did exist. But let's set it in a distant future where bias and prejudice aren't as likely to sneak into that setting. And Nathan, you're alluding to some of our other sections where we address it more directly. We have uh, two statements of intent in in Backwater. We also have one in in Backroads related to history of racism within American Gothic for, uh, for indigenous peoples. In Backwater, it's primarily about race and disability and talking about how this is a genre of literature in which these are pretty common themes. But as Alex was saying, we want people to be able to open the book, find themselves in it, but be able to play comfortably um, too. So we want a table where everybody can actually um, be involved. So we provide some guidance on there and basically say, we don't write racism into our settings and we don't want it in our games because we want people to be comfortable with it. And we also warn people like, the South uh, as a uh, geography, the locations in it, some of them themselves can be very triggering. And we uh, ask people to be very conscious of, uh, of the settings that they are including and what that can mean for some of the players um, at, at, their, at their table. And we encourage using safety tools when, uh, when engaging with some of these subjects. And, but more than anything else, just having a conversation with some of your, some of your players uh, about it too. Yeah, awesome. You guys 
started this, uh, obviously having done some design work yourselves, obviously having played a lot, you have kickstarted, you have, <laughs> you've released several products now. There have been actual plays of your games, all kinds of stuff. You guys created for several years, created together, created with uh, sensitivity readers, with other authors, with, with players, with groups, with all kinds of stuff. And have been doing it consistently. Again, you you have a, a product out, I think, literally the day that this episode drops <laughs> on April, April 27th. What has the creative journey of putting a project like this together, an ongoing project, an ever-expanding one, one that is, again, that is system and setting and both of those at the same time and adventures, um, it, but, but also something that came inherently with collaboration and came with examining yourself, with examining uh, history, with examining, you know, all of these heavy topics while also being like examining what are fun ways for us to give people cute little canaries <laughs> as part of our game. What did you learn or discover about yourselves as you were going through this? Is there anything that stands out to you that is that you look back and say, this is how I am changed from having done this, or these are the ways? I think it's made me a more conscientious storyteller. It's opened me up to a larger community than I ever had access to before. And that's been probably the best part of it. No offense, Asa. Uh, you're the second best part of it. <laughs> but just seeing people respond to it who are not me. You know, like seeing that, yes, the, these stories are valuable, but there's so much more that we can incorporate. I've, I've just felt myself be a sponge in terms mm. of being open to and incorporating experiences and stories that I would never have thought uh, to include. Yeah. It's made me a better storyteller as a result of the collaboration with uh, all these wonderful people, these amazing artists that we've worked with. All of it has just broadened my horizon in a way that uh, I don't think I would have if it weren't for this. Yeah. And I think I found some of that community too. I am more of an, an introvert and I, uh, I hate social media, but I am on there primarily just so I can like and retweet everything that Alex does because it's great. It's definitely opened me up uh, to community as one part of it. I think maybe sense of purpose or vocation and uh, uh, to another extent too, like I have a, a real job, which takes up way too much of my time, um, more than I'm paid for, that's for sure. And I enjoy my my job, but what I squeeze into the mornings and evenings of my day and on weekends uh, is creative work. It's writing emails and learning about how to do taxes for <laughs> these games and trying to get better at doing layout because um, if you want to be an indie creator, you have to learn how to do a lot of this stuff mm -hmm. on your own in order to make a more yeah. a lower overhead for you at, for trying to get these games going. A lot of that stuff, like I've never been excited about taxes and, you know, I'm still not, but, uh, <laughs> but I can enjoy learning a little bit more about it because I'm driven to create and to share and uh, appreciate that other people can uh, live in some of the stories that Alex and I and I yeah. create. So I think community is a big part of it. And I think a, a sense of, of purpose um, as well. What has been your experience working together, kind of having 
a collaborative partner throughout this this entire thing of having someone to bounce ideas off of and and what have you have you learned about collaborating and about how to do that how to share a brain and a product with another person who might have different ideas who might have other skill sets or or you both hate doing the same amount of taxes. The trick is we have the same brain. Yes. We are in fact two humans sharing the same brain. We just pass it between ourselves, usually via priority mail because we need it fast. <laughs> it's hard to just sit there without a brain. And that's why we're grateful for the U.S. Postal Service. <laughs> Absolutely. The thing I've learned most about collaboration is, is just increasing flexibility and being able to say, Alex, not every idea you have is brilliant. Although in the back <laughs> of my head, I know that's true. It's also important for Asa to be able to say, Alex, we should do something else. And me to say, yes, yes. <laughs> All right. You are correct. Uh, I don't need to hold on to this as much as I want to. And maybe that makes me sound like a creative monster. I promise I'm only a minor narcissist when it comes to writing settings and things. You, you, you say that as literally every single person who has ever had any amount of creative ideas accidentally catches a glimpse of themselves in some reflective surface and tries not to make eye contact. So I think you're probably, probably fine, Th or at least uh, surrounded by by other other such ilk. Wonderful. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's been learning to have a conversation about a thing that is not just your your baby, even though you might want it to be at times. It is, it is not. And sh having joint custody of it is a negotiation. <laughs> and we have negotiated over many things. I don't think ever acrimoniously. I don't think we've ever actually had to yell at each other. I've been, I've been sullen at least once. But <laughs> uh, I got over it and it was fine. So yeah, just learning to loosen up has that that's been my experience with, with collaboration. And I thank you, Asa, because I'm a much better person for it. Oh, I, I appreciate that. Uh, no, <laughs> um, I would just say Alex and I, because I, I think the thing that I've learned from the process is also to loosen up, <laughs> coincidentally. But Alex and I are two, had two very different approaches, I, I think. Alex, tell me if I'm completely off base, but uh, I imagine you as a creative genius who just comes up with these ideas magically. And when you're inspired, you're inspired with these magical abstract concepts and world building ideas. And I'm like extremely detail oriented and type A and every single thing I review it like 40 times and I'll, you know, and I pick everything apart because that's who I am and it's, and it's awful. And for me, it's loosening <laughs> up on, uh, on some of those detail oriented things and just being uh, okay with not being quite as rigid and letting the creative process um, uh, take charge uh, more than what would be my process, for example, too. So I think we've worked really well together. And I think the main thing that's made it work is that we just know each other and that we're good friends and that we care more about each other than we do about the the game, although we do love our, our games uh, uh, as well. <laughs> but I think that's helped um, guide us in our creative process and our in our collaborative work here. Um, so I don't know, I couldn't be happier to have a creative partner other than uh, other than Alex. So uh, Alex, thank you for sticking with me those these last couple of years through the pandemic and across the uh, the American lands. I'm blushing, but if you want to call me a creative genius, you can do so at any time. <laughs> <laughs>
that's fine. <laughs> I, I really mean that. I actually, I genuinely think that because I'm always looking at your stuff. I'm like, man, Alex writes such good stuff. And I've over here, I've, I've written 20 words and I've edited all 20 of them at one point. In time. I know that feeling very well. Another thing that always fascinates me as, as, a, as a marketing PR minded individual is how you're selling your stuff <laughs> and, and not in a not in a literal selling, you know, monetary transaction way, though that's part of it. You sat down in, in what, like you said, February 2020, just in just in time uh, and and got to work, put this together. I just think we started before February 2020. It probably would have been the, the fall because I think the first Kickstarter was March of 2021. Yeah. yeah, it's 2021. You're right. So yeah, that's that's about right. And then May of 2022 was for Backroads. So marketing stuff is hard. <laughs> marketing anything is hard. Marketing gaming stuff is hard. Marketing a new system is also hard because people often just want the comforting thing or they're like, oh, learning a whole new system. I, do I back it? If I don't know if I'm going to like it, there it's complicated. And it was new setting. It was new system. It was, you know, from people who are also new in the creating space. And you guys uh, kicked a bunch of ass in your Kickstarter um, and are still making stuff and are still putting out new things. Um, so what's the elevator pitch for you guys? And and what, you know, kind of how did you guys winnow that into something that was was obviously effective? We want to speak to things that can communicate to people. So we think about genre. And with Backwater, I think that communicated really, really easily because we're uh, we're talking about like the Louisiana swamps and these sorts of things. And I think that uh, that registered with a lot of people very quickly. And I think that was one of the things that, that was really helpful. And I think setting helps sell it over system. But having materials like quick start guides, for example, be available for free, I think helps people get a sense of what that system actually is and uh, and can help catch the system related people. The people are more interested in finding something that fits what type of game that they're looking for or something that isn't quite right in some of their other games. And we've heard that in our Discord, too. We hear plenty of people who are really excited about the setting and other people who are saying this is exactly what I was looking for in, in a system on one hand really trying to find ways that can easily communicate in a short period of time, uh, like thinking about speaking to genres and other types of literature that we can reference and people are like, oh yeah, I got that right away. Um, and then on the other hand, trying to put out materials that preview it well enough, uh, whether it's the art or quick start guides for people too. That's part of it. I think one of the most important things for marketing has been creating authentic connections with people too. Yeah. And I was just going to say, Alex, that's one of the things that I've seen you do really well. Whereas I like to cower in my corner of the internet and read five people's tweets. Uh, you like to engage with people and people like engaging with you. And through making that authentic connections, people become interested in, in our games and want to help share them as well. So I know you've done a lot of that. I don't see myself as a marketer of Backwater, if that makes sense. It's it's a mm -hmm. game that I, I helped write and is very important to me. My primary concern on Twitter is just making friends and hanging out with folks and having a good time. Be a person. Yeah. And I, I think that just being a genuine human being who likes other people and wants to support other people's projects goes a, a long way. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as a cynical exchange. It's it's certainly a benefit if people like me and like my game, but you can like me and not like my game. Yeah. You you can like Backwater and not like me also. That's fine. I would prefer if you liked me, but you don't have to. 
I don't come into things with the, oh, I need to market for backwater. It's more like, ah, Nathan, we played in some games together. We had a lot of fun. We could chat about backwater sometime. I don't know (laughs) if you want to. Yeah. There's a lot of drive to sell and to market and to to be on your game as an indie creator. And honestly, as Asa said, you know, our friendship is more important. The The project grew out of the friendship and we'd still be friends if it weren't, even if Backwater didn't happen. Those sorts of human connections and just general storytelling, as we've talked about before, is is important to me. And it just happens that, oh, I did write this game. And if you're interested in this sort of thing, <laughs> if... Southern Gothic appeals to you, you might want to check it out. I'm not saying you have to. It is there and it is an option. And yeah. I think if you're not an asshole, people might be slightly more inclined to do that. <laughs> it doesn't hurt to not be an asshole, for sure. I'm taking notes here. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> but, it, but it's true and it's helped in, in other areas too, because where I am more active is meeting with other creators, for example. Um, a lot of people that I sort of admire on the scene and have collaborated with or, or um, helped promote some of their stuff and help uh, promote ours too. But finding the right people in the, in the, to do that with too, people with similar interests and values as you. So there are a number of people I appreciate on, on the scene, like Tony from plus one XP. And I had a lot of um, great help from, uh, from somebody named duck, who's done a lot of great games like Cuticorium and, uh, and to change. There are plenty of other folks too, like Technical Grimoire and uh, David Sherduan, who I mentioned their game Low Country Crawl earlier. We ended up collaborating because we both do have done Southern Gothic works. And, and something that I appreciate is how much time they've and how much they valued uh, doing sensitivity readings for, for their work as well. So finding people with, with like interests and collaborating with them has also been a, a, a useful way to make friends first and foremost, as, as Alex is saying, but also help market our game and game and communicate it. And I learn a ton from, uh, from talking with these people. So I think, I think the last main question that I had for you guys was, was something that you got brought up and something that is again, also always a delight to hear from game designers. What has it been like to actually hear about and see and experience people playing your game and playing in your setting and being like, oh, this inspired me to do this actually other thing and getting to actually hear and interact with people who are using and appreciating and loving the thing that you worked on for a year before the Kickstarter launched and have continued working on and I know are are continuing to continue work on moving forward. I mean, for me, it's been wild. Yeah, the first time I hopped in the Discord and people were talking about this game that just came out of Ace and I's brains, I was like, that's weird. And <laughs> okay, yeah, but cool. Yeah. Carrie from Crossroads Games ran a backwater AP that was incredible. And she and the entire cast knocked it out of the park. Then we got a message that, hey, we enjoyed it so much, we're going to do a second one. And that that was just like, I don't know, I just sat with that one and put it in my compliments yeah. folder. You know, <laughs> like, yep. I'm going to refer back to this when I'm not feeling great, because these people liked our game enough that they're like, yeah, let's do it again. Yep. And these are people whose opinions I respect. Right. Yeah. Like they, they are just top top of their game people. And it, it's very inspiring to want to keep doing it. Yeah, I would say it's super rewarding. But if I had to pick one word, I'd say euphoric. I've really enjoyed it. And 
just sort of have appreciated the response. And I've even appreciated people who really like it and provide suggested or suggest some criticism sometimes too. Um, I like that they feel that, that they can say some of these things to us so long as they say them in a nice way. And, and so far, we've only had nice things uh, for the as far as I'm aware. I guess one of the other things, when I say it's rewarding, I feel like we do get uh, some out of it too. Like in our Discord, we've had a couple of conversations where People are like imagining different parts of, of the U.S. and what's happened there. And Alex and I have yeah. plans for things, but sometimes they're, they're like talking about these things. I'm like, geez, Alex, some of these ideas are way better than what you and I thought. <laughs> and just talking with some of these folks and appreciating things and asking them, hey, do you mind if this is something that we can incorporate and give you some acknowledgments here too? So for example, in the Backroads, the adventure companion has a one-sheet adventure in there, which is based off of uh, Children of the Corn a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, somebody in our, our Discord was talking a little bit uh, about like, oh, yeah, one of the things that I like about sort of this middle America setting is, you know, of the corn and the idea of like this mutant corn or spirit that's walking among the corns. And I'm like, yes, we need, not only do we need to do that, but we also need some cool art for it. So, uh, so we did that. And <laughs> You know, now we're going to do a Field of Dreams related adventure at one point in time, too, except creepier when these uh, haunted baseball players uh, come out of the field and start swinging bats at you. So <laughs> these sort of things can be really inspirational, and rewarding at the same time. It's just it's really nice to hear that people are enjoying our games. I feel like I have a million more questions and things that that I want to ask. And and of course, want to talk about all the stuff you have ahead of you. But that's it's not what time it is. It's not what it's time for. Alex. Uh huh. Asa, I am thrilled to regret to inform you that it is time for the Reckless to Talk lightning round. Okay. Now, uh, I won't lie to you. It is a gauntlet. It is a challenging battery of some of the toughest questions that I have I have d- devised that have been perfectly distilled from years of interviewing wisdom to get to the heart and soul of a person. They are the same questions that I have asked every single person in the exact same order. There is no wrong answer to any of these questions other than, I guess, technically, if you lie, I guess don't lie, just because that seems not fun. It can be as long as you want. It can be a single word. It can be, I don't have a good answer for that. No matter what it is, I will pause to ensure that you are done talking and we'll move on to the next one. Take your time or say it as quickly as your brain will allow you to. Whatever feels right, and we might, we might just get through this together alive. I'm hopeful. Are you ready? Yes. Yes, I'm ready. My lawyers tell me I have to have verbal confirmation before engaging the lightning round. I already signed that form that you sent us before this I, interview. I, I again, I unfortunately have been told that that's not a real legal document. Um, so I'm glad you signed it, uh, but I do have to follow up apparently. But question one, is your glass half full or half empty? I believe that the natural state of a glass is empty and therefore for it to be half empty is silly. It can only be filled with something. And so it is half full. Half full, but it depends what day it is. Usually it's half full. What excites you creatively, spiritually, and or emotionally? Mess. I enjoy messy things. I enjoy things that are tangled and unclear. And I enjoy pulling the, trying to pull those things apart. And I enjoy when they have resolution. And I enjoy when they don't have resolution. I think both are excellent. And 
a lot of our games are messy, but not like cluttered way, but in a things are a little tangled and I don't know how to quite sort it all out way. Cleanliness and order. <laughs> and I think this is a, a true reflection of who Alex and I are because yeah, that like genuinely you come to our house, everything is nice and neat and extremely clean and uh, and put in the right place. And everyone who works with me says, yes, you have a very type A personality. So cleanliness and order. What does not excite you creatively, spiritually, and emotionally? And if you'd like, we might be able to just modulate your voices so it sounds like you're saying what the other person said, in case that is <laughs> at all relevant. Uh, I, I would actually say no. I, I was thinking about this question, and there I could not put my finger on one thing that does not in some way mm -hmm. spark some some form of excitement in me. I think there's potential in everything, and that's probably a cheap answer. There are no but, cheap answers. How dare you? Okay, then my answer is mm, nothing. I, there is excitement in everything. I, I think my answer might be nothing, too. Is that doubly cheap because I'm just taking the answer from someone else and it's already a cheap answer? Uh, but yeah, it, it definitely is not mess because I am inspired by mess. Uh, sometimes I'm inspired to uh, to cleanse or clean or order uh, the mess. So I, I, I enjoy mess uh, as well, um, although not as much as cleanliness and order. So yeah, I would also just say nothing. The absence of anything does not excite me creatively, spiritually, or emotionally. What is your favorite sound? So I have a good answer for this, and I have a really obnoxious answer for this. The good answer is I love the sound that trees make in the wind where the wood just starts to groan a little mm. bit uh, and mm -hmm. creak. I really enjoy that. My obnoxious answer, because I don't think music counts, but I'm going to do this anyway. There's a note that happens in Tosca's Visit to Art, specifically in the Birgit Nilsson recording, where she hits a B-flat five that normally sopranos just have to like power up to when they're in this role. But she just like floats that motherfucker. And it like the first time I heard it, I literally my knees went out and I cannot listen to that without crying. And that's my obnoxious answer. For me, you know, I grew up, like I said, middle of nowhere. I enjoy enough quiet where there you don't hear traffic in the background. Uh, I enjoy like actually just being out in nature and hearing and hearing nature, the birds, yeah, the wind, uh, the grass, all of that. So genuinely something that I, I do enjoy. And I think everybody naturally does sort of a biophilic response. But what sound do you hate? So my dog is an idiot. <laughs> and he does not eat until he throws up. Mm. He makes a particular noise right before he throws up, which sounds like a cross <laughs> between a small raccoon and a small child shrieking. I know it's coming. Like when I, I see him go into his, I'm going to throw up posture. I know it's going to happen, but it just hits me in the soul every time. And I cannot abide it. Like my adrenaline spikes and I'm just mm -hmm. a mess because it sounds like he's dying. and. Like it ruins me for the day whenever it happens. And it happens at least once a month because, right, again, yeah. he's an idiot who can't eat for himself. For me, like when you're driving and you have to like go up at an incline and there's that split moment where the bottom of the front of your vehicle might mm. scrape that incline. I hate that. But actually, now that I'm thinking about it, there is one thing that I hate even more than that. And that is the sound of styrofoam being rubbed against yeah styrofoam uh 100%. that is awful and yeah ever since i was a kid just can't handle that 
What is your favorite word? No. I love saying no because I love creating boundaries and it's a thing that I need to do more. But I think it's important for people to say no. I think it's important for me to say no, even when I want to say yes, because I have to be healthy to myself. So I'm incorporating that no is my favorite word to say, not because I don't want to do something, but because I need to help myself be a good human being. So no. Man, this is a a tough one. My favorite word. I can definitely think of my least my least favorite uh, word here. But not there yet. Jason. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Jeez, uh, <laughs> did I accidentally predict the next lightning <laughs> round question? Um, you know, we were talking about 1999 earlier, and I don't know if this counts as a word, but maybe Smash Mouth. I, I just yeah. like that. I like that. So let's throw that in there. There are no wrong answers. No judgment here. Well, hey, now that you mention it, what's your least favorite word? This was the tricky one for me. I think it's probably some kind of onomatopoeia, like glorp. I don't like that. (laughs) I don't like that at all. So that. How do you not like onomatopoeia? I would say like the word organic uh, just does not sound very organic to me. So uh, let's toss that out. What tabletop role-playing game, D&D, etc., monster or foe, have you not faced or run? that you would love to? I have never run or faced a beholder, and I just want them to look at me with all of their eye rays. That is false, Alex. Wait, what? I ran a game in which you faced a beholder. Okay, I don't remember that. (laughs) It was a dungeon in the shape of an eyeball, even. Oh my God. Come on, Alex. um, Okay, I guess I'm going to have to revise my answer then to be... A uh, memorable encounter with a beholder. That or... or <laughs> actually, actually, you know what? I'm going to say this because I was in a Curse of Strahd campaign that went all the way up to Ravenloft and then never got there. Oh. So I want to fight Strahd. Yeah, that's legit. I'm not joking. That was my actual answer because I also had the same thing. And our mutual friend, Alex, ran... Uh, uh, a Curse of Strahd adventure for us. And right before we got to Ravenloft, actually, we just had gotten there. The group fell apart, so we never made it. What is your favorite adventure of all time? And this can be interpreted in a wide variety of ways. It can be an adventure, a tabletop adventure that you wrote, that you ran, that you've read, uh, that you have witnessed an actual play play. Or it could be a classic adventure like 1999's The Mummy. Whatever the answer is for you. What is your favorite adventure of all time? All right. Well, obviously, The Mummy is the correct answer to that, even though there are no correct answers, but The Mummy is the correct answer. My favorite written, published TTRPG adventure is The Enemy Within campaign for the Warhammer Fantasy role-playing game, which is a five-book adventure that is just pure intrigue and action and subterfuge and backstabbing and craziness. My favorite adventure that I have ever written is the Elbow Game, which you can currently find on the Live from the Apocalypse YouTube, which is a 1980s Call of Cthulhu women's wrestling league fighting eldritch horrors. That was a lot of fun. Boy, was it. Yeah, you really should watch it. I, I loved every every second of it. I'll put a link in the show description. And for me, my favorite adventure, so I guess I'll give two answers because Alex did too. My favorite adventure, I guess would say, is a campaign that I did with as I mentioned, my friend who I originally learned about tabletop role-playing games with that ran for years. And we eventually wrapped up that campaign. Like I said, it was just, a, it was sort of a beautiful moment um, with lots of great closure. And I don't think we'll ever have a campaign that will be as good of, uh, as that one. Uh, genuinely just great friends, great times all around. Long, long story. 
but very rewarding for us. But as Alex said, if there's an adventure that I had written, it would be whatever adventure I'm working on at the moment because mm-hmm. I get really into them and my partner can attest uh she isn't all that into tabletop role-playing games. Sometimes she'll she'll play with us, but we'll go on walks pretty much every day. And she will listen to me talk out <laughs> the adventure. And even though she knows nothing about what is necessarily going on, she'll throw out ideas and they'll always be better than mine. What is your favorite tabletop role-playing game character of all time? Similarly, it can be one you played, an NPC. It could be one you played with. It could be one that you watched on an actual play. Again, whatever the answer is for you, what is your favorite tabletop role-playing game character of all time? That would be my socialist warlock, Ernie Beecher, who just wants to redistribute the wealth and take down the top one-tenth of one percent, which means dragons and vampires and other landlords. <laughs> I can attest that's a pretty great character in, the, in a game that Alex and I had run, uh, run together. And My favorite uh, character of all time is also another one of Alex's characters, and that would be Swifty, who is Alex's sort of canonical character in the Backwater universe. Whenever there's an actual play that we do that Alex is taking a part of, he plays Swifty in Backwater. Um, And Alex always creates some of the best characters. And uh, when we do Backroads actual plays, he plays Independence Landgrab, who is uh, part of the Founders Cult and <laughs> has a cat named Roger that he carries with him on adventures. And it's just so lovable. Uh, so every time Alex creates a character, that's my favorite one. But I love Swifty. I also love Swifty. He's number two in my heart. Final question. What gives you hope? That is a tough one. But the community that I see in the dying wreck that is Twitter, just trying to support each other trying to go out of their way to make each other's days a little brighter and a little better because it's oppressively bad at times. I respect those plants that grow up in the cracks of asphalt. Mm -hmm. They might be weeds, but you know what? They're tough and they're just doing their thing and they're living their lives. And I feel like sometimes that's us. (laughs) We are the, the plants in the sidewalk and seeing, seeing people thrive in that situation it gives me hope that ah, maybe someday if if things are better, we'll, we'll thrive even more. And that's what I hope. And just seeing seeing all of the wonderful people doing their damnedest to bring light and joy to a dark and joyless place is uh, a beautiful thing. Yeah, I can't top that answer, but, I, you know, I'll give two any, anyway. And uh, one, I would say my partner, um, I've uh, she and I have been together for a very long time, but uh, she gives me hope in everything that she does. She's a very inspiring person uh, for me and uh, has a lot of integrity and is a very good person. And it always amazes me that there are people like that in this world. The other thing that gives me hope is more of a stereotypical answer, but I would say stories. And I love that stories allow us to imagine new possibilities and um, and also to escape from the the worlds in which we live that are not always that uh, that great. I love our little stories and I love my partner. Both of them give me hope. Gee, thanks for throwing me under the bus, Asa. How I'm gonna how, and Alex gives me hope too. No, I'm I, saying how am I gonna show Anne this podcast 
with you coming in and being like, Oh, I love my partner. Like, okay. Yeah. I love my partner too. She gives me hope, but you know what? (laughs) It doesn't count now because you said it first. No, yeah, it is. You are fucked. I'm sorry. I'm done. I'm doomed. And when you listen to this, sorry, sorry. I know it's true. He tells me all the time. I swear. Nope. But also he did have the list of the lightning round questions beforehand. So he could have prepared. So I just want you to have all the information. It's all right. Anne's phone is going to surprisingly develop a malfunction slash get <laughs> tossed out of her hand about five minutes before this point. Yeah, I was going to say, let it play through, you know, get the download. But but that's, you know, that is the danger of the lightning round. Speaking of the danger of the lightning round, you both have emerged on the other side victorious Woo! as the champions of the Reckless Attack podcast this week. Congratulations. Wow. Congratulations. Uh we will send you your commemorative pins in the mail shortly. Uh, be sure to, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to keep an eye out for those. But in the meantime, your reward is to once again, please tell everyone who you are, who you have been, and uh, what you do and where people can support you, knowing, of course, dear listener, all of these delicious links will be available in the episode description. And there is an implication that you should go check them all out. My name is uh, Asa, and I'm one of the two co-creators for Backwards Tabletop, who is the publisher of Backwater, Southern Gothic Horror Tabletop Role-Playing Game, and Backroads, the American Gothic Horror Tabletop Role-Playing Game. Uh, you can check out both of those on Itch or Drive Through RPG. Um, we have digital copies you can also get physical copies there too and backroads has just released today we also have a couple of adventures that you can check out as well as free quick start guides um, so that you can get yourself started and i might even add that we have uh, if you use virtual tabletops we have a character sheet on roll 20 that you can use to play as well we have two new projects coming out but first who's my co-creator here Hey, I have been Alex. I will continue to be Alex for as long as I know how to do that. You can find me at Mightiest Finn on Twitter, as long as it is still burning to the ground and not burned down to the ground around us. I'm going to be doing some actual plays coming up soon-ish. In May, I think I can announce this, we are going to be doing a Backwoods AP over at Live from the Apocalypse that I'm going to be running. It's going to be very good. I'm also going to be running a game at Life from the Apocalypse using Changeling the Lost set in an alternate timeline where the fairy court has taken over the Soviet Union and all of our players (laughs) are going to be dealing with some some Soviet intrigue. That's not related to this at all, but I am very excited for that. So check that out when you have a moment. Check out Elbow, which which I talked about already. That was a lot of fun. And I think there will probably be other APs coming up as well, but I don't know more about those. So... Check out my or Ace's Twitter or both of ours Twitters so that you can find out what those projects are, what those APs are as they get announced. Yeah, and a couple of those APs will uh, be coming up in July, which relates to our two new projects. Alex Alex mentioned that one of his APs is going to be something called Backwoods, and I wonder what that could be. It's another one of our games, and this one is going to be set in New England this time. Same universe but with four more character options, a ton of new items and monsters for you to uh, play with, and also a completely new setting, including the capital of the American lands, which is now Providence, uh, Rhode Island, because all the other cities have been destroyed. And then along with that, we're doing a double feature uh, Kickstarter, uh, and we're planning to launch it in July. 
along with Backwoods, we'll be releasing Back Channels, which is another uh, gothic horror tabletop role-playing game set in that universe, this time featuring Florida and Georgia and Alabama, the Gulf Coast and the uh, Atlantic states. And it features a little bit of the history of the area in terms of piracy and brings it back into our post-apocalyptic setting. So um, go ahead and become a swashbuckler and explore some of the seas or humid swamps of of Florida and check out that new setting as well. So uh, we really hope that uh, those of you who listen to this podcast will give us uh, a follow on our pre-launch page on Kickstarter, which will be uh, thrown out um, in the description as well. Guys, thank you so very much for being here. It was a delight and thank you. Thank you, GM Nathan. (laughs) Thank you, Nathan. Bye. Goodbye. Bye, everybody.